You are listening to excerpts from the third annual meeting of the H.L. Mencken Club, held in Baltimore, Maryland, in October of 2010. The theme of this year's meeting was PC, the Future of an Illusion. We now present to you the first talk of the conference by Paul Gottfried and introduced by Richard Spencer. The title of Mr. Gottfried's talk is How the Left Won the Cold War. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the third annual meeting of the H.L. Minkin Club. Uh, our conferences, our programs keep getting better and better and more and more varied, and our audiences keep getting bigger and bigger. And uh, the H.L. Minkin Club isn't exactly um, the equivalent of uh, the Rangers versus the Yankees. Uh, it's pretty uh, intellectually uh, formidable. And so I think what we have here is not simply a, a, co a conference, but a real community. And uh, I can speak on behalf of the board. We're, uh, we're very proud of that. Um, I know this is probably not news to anyone um, but uh, here, but uh, the H.O. Making Club marks an attempt to forge a new independent intellectual right. And in doing that, we, uh, we certainly don't uh, follow any party line uh, or, uh, or have an agenda of any kind. But I, I think if you look at uh, a thread that you can trace through each and every one of the speeches which you'll hear over the next two days, um, <clears throat> I, Paul ordered us to, uh, there are some neocons in the audience, uh, but I think they've been taken care of uh, at Paul's orders. <laughs> Um, if, uh, if, you can, if you can trace a thread through all the, the talks, um, I believe it's a, a willingness on, on the part of the men here to say what in our culture has been deemed unsayable and to think what has been deemed unthinkable. Um, this isn't an H.L. Uh, Mencken Appreciation Society. It's, uh, we are inspired by H.L. Mencken uh, and his writings and uh, his thought. And uh, as I was working on, on uh, this conference, I was put in mind of a fallen comrade uh, named Joe Sobren, uh, who uh, died recently. And uh, Joe uh, uh, shared a, a lot of things in common with H.L. Mencken, uh, the most obvious being his ability to craft a phrase that can cut right through the pretty little hypocrisies of the age. I think my favorite, um, which is apropos to this conference, is when uh, Joe was speaking of uh, white liberals' uh, love of diversity and political correctness. And uh, he noted that in their mating and migratory habits, white liberals are indistinguishable from the Ku Klux Klan. <laughs> Uh, which is quite true. And actually, a friend of mine sent me, uh, Joe, I'll say this, Joe uh, shared um, some other things in common with uh, Mencken, and that is uh, to write in, in a kind of elliptical and um, aphoristic style. And, um, and, and he's eminently quotable. And uh, a, a friend of mine recently sent me a, uh, a Sobrin's dictionary uh, of sorts, which he had compiled. And uh, I thought I'd just um, get the evening started by reading a few of these. Uh, all of them are, are apropos to our group and our community and our event. Um, but he, he said the freedom of, he, he defined a lot of words in terms of the mores of political correctness and right thinking Americans. Uh, so freedom of association, what we're practicing tonight. Evil discrimination that must be stamped out by the government. Civil rights, 
government power used in behalf of large groups. A, the definition of a bigot, one who practices sociology without a license. <laughs> an isolationist, an American who thinks America should behave like other countries. A rogue nation, a country that behaves like America. <laughs> Opinion polls, clever devices to make the hostages think that they control their captors. That was particularly devilish. Um, public opinion, what everyone thinks, everyone else thinks. Political correctness, very apropos. The felt pressure of enlightened public opinion, under which we sense that certain thoughts, though technically legal now, are already destined to become taboo. And this one is, uh, finally, the definition of an anti-Semite a person who's hated by Jews, which sadly uh, relates to Sobran's career. Um, <clears throat> uh, it's, a, it's, it's a great pleasure for me to introduce um, our president and our leader, Paul Gottfried. Uh, this man certainly needs no introduction uh, for everyone assembled here. Uh, Paul is the author of many books, uh, but four of which I think are indistinguishable for understanding contemporary politics. And if there's ever going to be a H.L. Mencken Club reading list, these, all four of these would be on them. Um, and those include after liberalism, um, uh, multiculturalism and the politics of guilt towards a, a secular theocracy, the strange death of Marxism, and making sense of the American right. Uh, Paul was able to see more clearly than most conservatives about the American right, uh, particularly in the sense that they offered, they were relatively speaking admirable in their opposition to the forces of political correctness, the liberal establishment, and a, a, a leftish egalitarian culture. And as, as Paul has revealed, uh, not only were they only relatively admirable in their opposition to that, um, but they, they based their own philosophy on the same assumptions as the left, the left that gave birth to all of those things that I mentioned before. Um, I think Paul was able to see this in a way that the rest of the, the conservative movement can, could not. This is a movement that treats us every year with a host of indistinguishable and celebratory books on their supposed achievement, um, Paul was able to see more clearly uh, than they have, uh, mostly because he was always, he, he always stood apart from the conservative movement, was outside it. Um, I, I, there's a funny story which Paul relates in his autobiography um, about uh, Gertrude Himmelfarb accusing him of being a crypto-Bavarian Catholic. Um, she couldn't believe that he was actually Jewish. It seems like the other Jews she knew in, in New York were good right-thinking neoconservatives who marched right in line. And Paul has definitely not done that. Um, if we're going to form an independent right, uh, we need an independent leader. And uh, there's been no better choice for the president of the H.L. Mencken Club uh, than my friend, Paul Gottfried. to imagine what happens if you can't negotiate that step. You probably break your leg and get dragged to a hospital and lose your chance 
of it for addressing this group. <clears throat> um, I'm often asked why there is need for an independent or non-aligned right, and every year I give you pretty much the same explanation. Uh, and at least in my opening paragraph, I do this here. And I say, aren't Sean, Sean Hannity, Sarah Palin, and Rich Lowry covering all our bases? Why should we create a movement on the right when Fox and those middle-aged people in 18th century wigs marching around at tea parties are doing our job? Why give ammunition to the Democrats by showing that our side is divided? We should be pulling together so we can pummel Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid in next month's national referendum on Obama. Now, engaging this question properly would require more than a 10-page exposition. Uh, indeed, there's no way to address it without being in this instance an Hegelian. It was the great German philosopher Hegel who argued that the true definition of concepts and movements are necessarily genetic. Such definitions cannot be dealt with properly unless we go back to the origin of what is being defined. <clears throat> a tree is not what it first appears to be, but the history of that object from the time it was a seedling. So too, there is no way to understand where we are at the present moment without noticing where we were before. The present state of any institution or movement reflects a dialectical process teeming with strife. It is only when, according to Hegel, conflicting forces can be brought together in a permanent synthesis that the contradictions are resolved. Before that point is reached, the dialectic must go on as something integral to what is being formed. My point now is not to belabor you with Hegel. It is rather to bring up the unfinished dialectic of the American right for understanding why we do not belong to the authorized conservative movement and why that movement has become an echo of the left. Allow me then to start with this generalization. <clears throat> In the second half of the 20th century, the other side, from our perspective, won almost everywhere in the West. But the left that prevailed was not the gerontocracy and garrison socialism associated with Soviet rule. This left had little to do with occupation armies and baggy pants, or with inefficiently distributed goods and services, or with an arsenal of atomic weapons. The left that triumphed was a truly radical one, <clears throat> and it celebrated its victories in Western countries that were straining to practice more egalitarian democracy. Whether the American Civil Rights Movement and its later implications for feminists, gays, transvestites, and illegals, the ascent of anti-fascism and tiers-mondialisme in France, Italy, Spain, the Lowlands, or the morbid preoccupation of Germans with their undemocratic past, the post-communist left has had a constant task. It seeks to right the wrongs of the past, and specifically those wrongs that are identified with a white Christian Western civilization. It may be superfluous to go over the characteristics of this left in your company, since most of you are aware of what is being described. <clears throat> I might also recommend my book, The Strange Death of European Marxism, which shows how the present left differs from both Marxism in theory and communism in practice. This movement is, called, is sometimes called cultural Marxism, and it is now raising holy hell against anything that is not sufficiently radical in the social sphere. Its adherents blame bourgeois society for such evils as racism, sexism, homophobia, and Hitler's Third Reich. This post-Marxist left appeals to the guilty conscience of the West for having held everyone else down. 
<clears throat> and for not having fought with true determination the ubiquitous fascist threat. Although in Europe this particular left defends communist regimes and invariably plays down Stalin, the crimes of Stalin's Russia, it is not primarily interested in socialism. <clears throat> it is interested above all in reconstructing society with integrating Western nations into global organizations and with opening Western countries to third world immigration and to popularizing non-Christian or non-Judeo-Christian religions. For those who may have noticed, the European Union has become a major instrument for this desired social experiment in Europe. Where this left overlaps Christian theology is in its stress on guilt and the need for atonement. But the Christian attitudes involved are recycled into a kind of replacement theology, one that develops a cult of revolutionary saints and victims, and one that produces a liturgical calendar centered on politically correct remembrance. In its political theology, or in this political theology, victimizing groups are expected to exhibit unconditional atonement toward those considered victims. <clears throat> this post-Marxist left began to supplant communism as the major leftist ideology in the West, even before the fall of the Soviet empire. In the 1960s, a youth culture, rejecting bourgeois standards of conduct and in close alliance with anti-colonial third world revolutionaries had already taken root in Europe. Energy began to flow in large communist parties away from traditional party cadre toward young radicals. This rising elite, these rising elites were concerned with combating discrimination against women and immigrants and with the marginalization of gays more than they were with the nationalization of productive forces. Although this emerging order becomes more apparent after the violent demonstrations of the Soissons-Huitards in Paris in May 1968 and the organization of Red Brigades in Germany and Italy, signs of a changing guard were present before. In a perceptive work, uh, Sognando la Revoluzione, thinking about the revolution, the Milanese political historian Danilo Bereschi shows how communist youth organizations and worker strikes fell into the hands of what the old communists called decadent bourgeois adolescents. While those who showed up for strikes in the 1960s in Italy were self-proclaimed anti-capitalist radicals, recruited from Catholic action, Trotskyist factions, and ethnic minorities. For the under-30s demonstrators, the real agenda was more ambitious, but also more feasible. It was a social-cultural transformation to be engineered from above. Longtime advocates of Marxism, like filmmaker Pipi Pasolini and Marx scholar Lucio Coletti, raged against these usurpers, and they called for ousting them from their own respectable leftist gatherings. Coletti went so far as to call the police to eject these decadents from his office. And Pasolini saw their agitation on the Italian left with growing apprehension and referred to their statements as a verbal disease. This post-Marxist anti-bourgeois left had less sympathy for communist parties than they did for other socialist groups, and particularly for the Greens, as the Greens shifted their focus from environmental purity to filling Western countries with third, the third world poor and with promoting alternative lifestyles, they became indistinguishable from the post-Marxist left. By the end of the Cold War, communism in the West had become obsolete 
because the cultural Marxist left had taken its place and because this replacement left was shaping the left side of the ideological spectrum in Western and Central Europe. <clears throat> the communist parties in France, Italy, and Germany continued to function as one of several bastions of cultural Marxism, but not usually as its vital center. A similar process unfolded in the Soviet Empire more slowly. Under the noses of communist officials in East Germany, for example, cultural radicals and most prominently Stasi informant and now head of the German party of the democratic left, Gregor Gussi, were gaining visibility. The DDR's collapse allowed these radicals to join those in the West who were pushing the same projects, namely gay and feminist rights, harping on fascist dangers, and turning nation states into branches of a global managerial regime. One might try to challenge the eventual direction of my argument by insisting this has nothing to do with Fox, National Review, or Glenn Beck. The conservative movement proclaims itself to be anti-leftist, and we know this. It was on Glenn Beck or O'Reilly or these other talking heads who are told they're against the left, so I mean, presumably they must be correct. Um, this conservative movement mocks the glorification of Islam and upholds Western democratic and feminist ideas. And it defends the sovereignty of the American state against international organizations. Uh, one well-paid GOP satirist, Mark Stein, actually derives Europeans and Canadians nonstop for catering to anti-Western fanatics. I could not therefore be suggesting that our official conservatives represent cultural Marxist or liberal Christian quirks. In fact, I'm suggesting precisely this view. And I would make the further point that what separates our authorized right center from the post-Marxist left in Europe and on the American and Canadian left is mostly quantitative. While the left pushes political correctness exclusively, the conservative movement expresses it in a less extreme form. But both groups reflect in varying degrees the same cultural movement. Like our left and like the dominant ideology in Western Europe, our 30 and 40-some conservative publicists are immersed in a leftist culture. <clears throat> and the result is that all of them believe things that adults in the 1950s, including communist sympathizers, would barely have understood. It would be no exaggeration to say that Sarah Palin who is an outspoken advocate of anti-discrimination laws for women and just about every other group, is more radical socially than were French and Italian communist leaders 60 years ago. While old-fashioned communist members favored a centrally controlled economy and rooted for the Soviets in the Cold War, unlike Sarah, they were not eager to punish sexists. And they didn't give a hoot about gays up until the time the communist parties were under siege from the post-Marxist left. It is inconceivable that communists of this era would have followed Jonah Goldberg, Charles Krauthammer, Jean Podoritz, the neocon New York Post, and the Wall Street Journal in affirming government-enforced gay rights, and in the case of some of these people, gay marriage. Two historians of the post-World War II communist movement in France and Italy, Annie Kriegel and Andrea Ragusa, depict a party leadership that belonged even in spite of itself to a bourgeois age. They stress the degree to which communist parties embody the social attitudes of the pre-Vatican II church. Acceptable critics of the Islamic invasion of Europe like Stein and Christopher Caldwell are targeting, and this should be noted, 
a specifically European experiment in multiculturalism. America's willingness to take in and naturalize just about everybody does not bother these critics. Presumably, our Big Ten can hold lots more than we already have. By declaring ourselves to be a propositional nation held together by human rights and universal democratic equality, we are opening our doors to the world, or at least to those in the world who publicly affirm our universal creed. I've also learned over the last few decades, thanks to movement conservatives, that Martin Luther King was acting specifically as a conservative Christian theologian when he spearheaded the civil rights movement, um, uh, that gay marriage, if properly understood, may well be a, con a conservative family value, and that we are duty-bound to convert Muslims to our correct notions of women's rights and gay rights. It is precisely these ideas that make us Western. And if we truly value the glories of our civilization, which came into existence during some recent phase of late modernity, we should work to spread everywhere our high ideals. Equally relevant, those who have challenged our human rights beliefs and most outrageously 19th century conservatives and counter-revolutionaries were actually leftists. Otherwise, these, these mislabeled people would have embraced the American creed of democratic equality, and everyone in this room must know that I am uh, parodying uh, Jonah Goldberg, <clears throat> and uh, I think Peter Brimlow called him one of his Goldberg variations. <laughs> A striking example of how deeply leftist thought patterns have affected the right can be discerned in William F. Buckley's response to the attacks uh, against the anti-Semites Joe Sobran and Pat Buchanan. In National Review and his subsequent In Search of Anti-Semitism, Buckley distinguishes between those who are anti-Semites by conviction and those who are contextually anti-Jewish. His key distinction goes back to the Marxist notion of being an objective reactionary, meaning someone who contradicts the preferences of the Communist Party. Buckley's argument from context likewise recalls the charge in Europe against those who challenge immigration or multiculturalism as greasing the skids for neo-Nazis. From this standpoint, it does not matter whether or not one says something that is objectively correct. What counts is not upsetting certain groups, uh, or in this case, Buckley's dinner companions, or a particular political order. In Buckley's brief, neither the malefactors nor the victims have anything to do with Nazi persecution. The catastrophe is being placed at the doorstep of anyone who allows himself to be intimidated into accepting it. Furthermore, the blame in this instance affects Americans who are required to show prescribed sensitivity toward particular American Jews. There are surrogate victims and surrogate victimizers, the first being Buckley's dinner companions and those journalists who express outrage, they are the victims, the second being those who make offending remarks but had nothing to do with Nazi crimes, they are the victimizers. Offenders had to be driven off the pages of National Review. They are or were the equivalent of what the communists used to call social fascist, and what the European guardians of PC consider fascistoid. Such antisocial types are contextually dangerous, and therefore must be ostracized, lest they do harm. Note that our two contextual anti-Semites were not abetting violence against Jews or anyone else any more than European critics of Muslim immigration or German scholars who question the exclusive blame of their country for every major war in history are trying to unleash pogroms. They have simply run afoul of the thought police. <clears throat> Those who scream against deviationists are trying to shut down inconvenient debates. The conservative movement plays this game by excluding contextual bigots 
and by declaring any questions they don't want raised to be closed. Uh, <clears throat> I think about once a month, uh, George Will says that we now know this is a closed question, and we've agreed to close this question. And my question is, whom did he agree with besides Gertrude Himmelfarb and Bill Crystal and so forth? Because nobody ever came and asked me if that question had been closed. Okay. Such questions now include, among a myriad of other things, any objection to major congressional legislation of the 1960s, <clears throat> about which I intend to speak tomorrow morning. What did remain in the conservative movement from the 1950s through the 1980s was anti-communism. American conservatives throughout this period were in favor of resisting communist expansion and generally considered the Soviets an evil empire. But the movement's arguments against the evil empire changed over the decades. From defending Western civilization against this godless foe to standing up for global democratic values against reactionary homophobic communist enemies. And these changing reasons for an anti-Soviet stand tell much about the movement's leftward drift. This drift became a forced march after the neoconservatives ascended to power, and its consequences help explain why we're in this room and why there is an independent right. We more than others have resisted the post-Marxist left. We remain at war with that this cultural political force that reshaped the left in the 1960s. The conservative movement, by contrast, has made its peace with those forces while emphatically denying what has happened. The authorized conservative movement has worked to blur this truth. The victory of the West in the Cold War is placed into an invented series of conservative triumphs. Going from Reagan's conservative revolution of the 1980s, which just, I missed it, it just went right by me, uh, through the presidency of Bush II. In the Heritage Foundation's embellishment, even the Clinton presidency belonged to, quote, an ongoing conservative revolution <clears throat> that began with Reagan and culminated in W's Democratic Crusade. Like Reagan in Bush I and II, Clinton supposedly practiced fiscal conservatism and advanced American concepts of human rights, albeit not as effectively as his Republican rivals. There have also been good Europeans who aided this conservative march including an otherwise run-of-the-mill social leftist, Tony Blair, who rallied to the Bush administration. Thatcher and Cole were two other good friends who supported us during the Cold War. The German Cole was obsequious enough, that is conservative enough, in the current Pickwickian sense, to make sure that his country's unification would be a passing stage in its merger with an international body, so much for the Germans. Being conservative outside the U.S. means going along with neoconservative policies. Movement conservatives have also applied the sea label to things that have nothing to do with any genuine right in the history of the human race. Democratic equality and moderate feminism are two such preferred conservative values that the conservative movement claims for itself. Conservative think tanks have also reinvented self-described leftists as men and women of the right. The reinventions of King, Joe Lieberman, Pat Moynihan, and probably a million other people as conservative heroes all exemplify this practice. <clears throat> but such manipulations have their use. The movement can claim to be doing well even when the left triumphs. They simply rename leftist rightist, so they, they win in the end. Conservative publicists have also reconstructed the 1960s by divorcing its cultural radicalism from its politics. Although nasty hippies, we are told, foul the air by not brushing their teeth and by smoking pot, 
The 1960s also produced legislative reforms that presumably would have pleased Edmund Burke. It was the Civil Rights Act that, according to Jonah Goldberg, bestowed on our country, quote, economic freedom for the first time. And the Voting Rights Act was another conservative landmark because thereafter the federal government made sure that everybody got to vote, and voting is a conservative practice which reinforces conservative institutions. The more people vote, the more conservative we become. Um, And equally important, the immigration reform of 1965 filled the U.S. with a conservative electorate, the benefits or conservatism of which I have yet to ascertain. In the 1950s and 1960s, conservatives held markedly different views. While they held no brief for those who were occupying university buildings who didn't bathe often enough, they were at least equally unhappy with that era's political reforms. Not even in their wildest dreams could most of them have imagined that such far-reaching attempts at remaking our, our country attitudinally and ethnically would one day be declared conservative. And I would make the obvious point that one doesn't have to applaud Jim Crow laws, and I for one do not, in order to recognize that measures that were taken to end discrimination have created a permanent governmental straitjacket from which we're not likely ever to extricate ourselves. There was nothing conservative about the congressional and bureaucratic measures by which that straitjacket was constructed, or about the way it continues to intimidate those who do not dance through the prescribed bureaucratic hoops. But today's conservative movement is about preserving the 1960s, It has turned that decade's transformative legislation into the cornerstone of conservative politics. And then there was that other problematic triumph for the right. Supposedly, the collapse of the Soviet empire belonged to a series of conservative victories in the West, associated with Reagan, Thatcher, uh, Clinton, Bush I, Bush II. But the end of Soviet hegemony in Eastern Europe did not cause the ideological shift that is sometimes ascribed to it. The Soviets left the stage of history after a more radical left had taken over, and this occurred preeminently in the West, which had never suffered the fate of Soviet occupation. This replacement left subverted or reshaped communist organizations long before the collapse of the Soviet empire. In its milder form, it determined the general political culture in Western countries including that of a transformed American right. One cannot complete the story of why there is an independent right without also looking at this big picture. We are part of that picture as much as those who now oppose us. But unlike movement conservatives who do know the truth, we are not given to manipulating the facts. In the West, there were no conservative victors in the Cold War. Such victors, if they existed, were the renascent nations of Eastern Europe. And even these deserving victors may be threatened with moral defeat if the left that has triumphed in the West, including this country, continues to gain ground. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To find out more about the H.L. Mencken Club, visit the website at hlmencconclub.org. At the website, you can subscribe to the podcast and also find the full audio of the conference available for download per individual talk, including question and answer segments not heard here.